0: Welcome to the Sword and Trial. The Sword and Trial is a podcast of Founders Ministries. And Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of the local churches. And I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gunder. And we're glad to have you join us today. And we're especially glad that you're here today because we have a special guest, Ben Dunson, Dr. Ben Dunson, who is here in Cape Coral at the Institute of Public Theology, teaching a course on political theology this week to our students. And we just finished up the first day. And uh, Ben, thank you so much for joining us here on the sword and the trowel. That's been great. Uh, we're glad to uh, welcome you into this conversation. We want to remind you that if you're intending to go to the annual conference in January of 2023, you need to sign up pretty quickly. Uh, space is filling up quickly. We look forward to having Paul Washer, Vodie Balkum, and Joel Beakey with us, along with Bradley Pierce for that conference as we address the question, what is man? And there's hardly a more relevant subject for us to address right now in American Christianity and American culture. As well. Dr. Dunson, you have uh, spent a lot of time thinking about things that we've talked about on this podcast and trying to get our minds around, and then especially this course that you're teaching this week on political theology. But that's not really where you started out in your formal academic studies in terms of theological considerations. So tell us a little bit about how God guided you and then put you together in experience and in your own academic disciplines to bring you to a point where you're interested in teaching public theology.
1: I've, I've always had a very strong interest in politics. Even when I was a, a kid, I was very interested in that. Um, I, um, I had a grandmother who was also very, very interested in politics, and we would always uh, talk about it when we and mm. and I, I remember just being very interested, even in presidential elections, as a kid, and um, and that interest stayed with me throughout life. Uh, I studied political science um, as an undergrad at our institution, uh, Texas A and M. Texas A and M, that's right. Um, <laughs> and and that was unfortunately um, not very enjoyable <laughs> because uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, the study of, of politics there was was very much. Um, um, Statistics and mm. and uh, very centered on trying to think of politics as a science, and so it's very light on political philosophy and and political history. That's what I wanted to study. Yeah. So it was disappointing.
0: So, so who did you? What was your first election that you actually got to cast a, a ballot? You know, the,
1: the first time I ever voted was George Bush uh, Junior uh, the the uh, the first time he ran. Okay. So I what, think you I, were in
0: college, I guess, at the time. Yeah,
1: I, I let's see. When was that election? Now I, I can't even 2000. remember. Yeah, two thousand. Wow. So yeah, I was uh, right in the middle of my time at A and M. I I think I might have just missed the the previous election. Okay.
0: My first uh, election was nineteen seventy six, and I voted for Jimmy Carter because he was a good
2: Southern Baptist. You know? All right. <laughs> I spent
0: four years regretting it.
2: <laughs> that's uh, that's even worse than my first election, voting for Mitt Romney. Oh, did you? Well, nevertheless, um,
0: it was funny because my political science professor uh, that year at A&M was saying that once Carter was elected, all of his friends from the Northeast were calling and saying, what is born again? What is born again? <laughs> oh, I didn't have an idea. So, all right, you graduated with a poli-sci degree in a yeah. is that right? Mm-hmm, so, what did you do right. after that?
1: You know, I, I was a little bit aimless for, for a year. Uh, I wasn't really sure what to do, and, um, and I I, I had a, a sense that I wanted to be in ministry in some way. I just, mm-hmm. I wasn't really sure. So I took a year off and then decided I wanted to go to seminary. I was still a little clueless because at that time I was, I was deciding between Westminster and Dallas Seminary, mm. and, uh, and my college pastor is hearing me say this and uh, realizing that he must not know uh, enough <laughs> about the differences to even realize that. <laughs> That's a pretty radical yeah. <laughs> difference between the two of them. So I, I learned a little bit more uh, in, yeah. in that year and, uh, and realized Westminster was the place. And went in Philadelphia? In Philadelphia, oh, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I had I had a growing sense for a call to ministry, but it was still a little bit hazy for a mm-hmm. while. But then I went there to, to study. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after Westminster? After Westminster, I, I moved to England. So I, I got married um, in, after my first year of seminary. And we had our first son towards the end of that time, and then we moved to Durham, England, in the northeast of England. And uh, I did my doctorate at the University of Durham in New Testament, so we were there for three years. So from New
0: Testament, from political science bachelor's to an MDiv, I guess, at Westminster? Yeah, well, I
1: I did an an MAR and a THM. Okay. Yeah. At Westminster, and
0: then you go to Durham and New Testament, mm-hmm. and now you're teaching political theology.
1: Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> it's been a it's been a wild ride. Um, I again, I've just had that interest, uh, mm-hmm. even even in studying New Testament, um, I've I've had a an interest in issues that I think are are related to the Christian's place in the world mm-hmm. and and thinking through uh, what it means to live in in a world. Um, where uh, we've got to make these kind of decisions about uh, politics and things like that. So I've had that interest mm-hmm. uh, maybe below the surface a bit. Uh, it's been recently, though, that I've been able to really uh, yeah. kick that into high gear with American Reformer mm-hmm. and, um, and so on.
0: Yeah, well, that's uh, I got introduced to you through Graham because, uh, Graham, you were a student mm-hmm. of Dr. Dunson's at Reformation Bible College, right? Yes, and that's right. So, I mean, what, what all
2: did you take from Oh, man. <laughs> I probably took eight or nine classes from you. I taught a lot of classes. Yeah, so. uh, the, we were just talking about um, Theology of Paul, uh, having to read Herman Ritterboss as a, as a freshman in Bible college. Um, took all my Greek classes from you, four, four Greek classes. Um, threatened with a Roman gladius sword um, in those Greek <laughs> classes. Um, actually, Dr. Dunson was probably the single influence that kept me from becoming a libertarian in college. It was, you know, all the rage to become a libertarian. Who needs government anyway, right? Yeah. Um, and I just remember one day in the kitchen drinking coffee. You're like, "Libertarians aren't conservative," and I had ne- never even <laughs> thought of that. Uh. Like, oh, libertarians aren't conservative. Maybe we can d- discuss that today. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, very good. Yeah. And I remember you've been at American Reformer now for a little over a year, two years. Yeah. So we, we launched
1: last summer. We okay. were kind of doing the the initial work and in over the year before that to get it ready.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I just i guess graham you may have told me about it first but i started reading the things that you put out there which by the way if you're not familiar with american reformer you you definitely got to go there's americanreformer.com.org.org .org, .org, yeah. yeah and there's just a wealth it's a growing wealth yeah. of resources there to think theologically about culture life the key issues of the day um i just appreciate the good work that you're doing thank you so how, what led you to be involved in that
1: effort well, um, a lot of things. Uh, one was a friendship in in Dallas um, with uh, Nate Fisher, who's our our founder, uh, one of our founders, and uh, he's a, a businessman and an investor in Dallas. And uh, we had a lot of common interests. We went to church together, and we had um, we had become friends, and we began uh, talking about uh, education. That was kind of what. What got it started, mm-hmm. I think, was we both had a, a strong interest in, in education and higher education, and then one thing led to another. We started talking about just the, the pressing needs of the day and realizing that there, there's a lot of good resources out there for thinking about culture, maybe even politics and things, but there, there isn't as much from a kind of classically Protestant perspective, uh, just getting people thinking about it and uh, getting in touch even with some older authors um, in, in that tradition and, and seeing ways that we can apply them today. And we both had an interest in that, so we started mm-hmm. talking about the possibility of a publication that would, that would emphasize that. But he also had a very strong uh, interest in something that would be aligned with uh, a kind of activism component, right, that's um, dealing with trying to change institutions, right? Not just talking mm-hmm. and not just writing, but also being oriented towards actual uh change for the better Mm -hmm. in in different organizations
0: yeah well very interesting so so i'm interested in your take on uh, what's going on in american evangelicalism broadly and then any kind of uh smaller segments of that that you might be familiar with with regard to these kinds of concerns Mm -hmm. the concerns of public or political
1: theology what what do you see I mean, I see that a lot of Christians are active politically, but maybe um, some of them haven't really thought about it that much, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of uh, instinctual or um, just responding to the the issue of the day. So I see that to some degree. On the other side, there's a very strong trend towards uh, trying to tell Christians that they shouldn't be involved in politics, that, that politics itself... Is it's going to it's unspiritual? It's going to lead them away from uh, faithfulness to Christ. That it's it's um, it's beneath them. It, it maybe will even defile them, or it's just you know we, we've heard that right? It's mm-hmm. dirty business. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a necessary evil at best, but maybe not even that. Mm-hmm. And so th- I felt like there's a lot of uh, maybe confusion about that. Primarily because people are saying that, you know, they're saying you can't be involved. You're not a faithful Christian if you are. So a lot of people are impacted by that. And they think, oh, man, I, I, I guess I can't care about these sort of things. Um, I need to, to just only deal with what they're telling me is spiritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we wanted to be a place that that shows people that if you think about politics rightly, if you can kind of transcend this idea of just partisan infighting and all that, that that's not exactly core of politics, that politics is about how humans organize themselves in society mm-hmm. um, and how to do that justly and rightly. And and uh, maybe we've all heard people uh, disparaging power lately, right? just the idea that if you seek power, that's evil. But what if it's the case that... Uh, power is inherent to government, and we should have a righteous exercise of power. We should, you know, we should seek that mm. as Christians, and trying to help people see those sorts of things. Because uh, I think there's a lot of confusion about that.
2: Yeah, it seems as though there's. Um There's also kind of a pessimism or a defeatism that when when Christians think about government, well, certainly we can think about the utopia, pie-in-the-sky vision for what we would do, but Christians will never be in control of of government. Christians will never really be able to have an effect. It will always be secularists or pagans who are the civil magistrates. So what we need to do is we need to figure out how to live as a church, under people who are not christians and so it's just like why even bother right. trying to figure out a political theory or political th- philosophy have you seen that
1: oh yeah 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 it's just it's making peace with the kind of secular settlement right um that you keep your private values uh, to yourself and that's fine if if that's what you believe although that's increasingly not even true mm. um and uh, and keep it out of the the public sphere the public realm you, know, you see that all over the place um, Yeah, I think a lot of Christians are confused about that um, as well. I do fear
2: that that's one of the, uh, perhaps one of the effects of a bad Baptist uh, political theory is because we've always kind of been on Mm -hmm. the outskirts and and even in our own founding is that, you know, we're never going to be there. We're never going to be the ones with power. So how do we then live in light of that and never actually thinking about, okay, well, how do we gain power so that we can exercise it justly?
0: Yeah, and even thinking about that becomes like an indictment against your core profession and what God's called you to be. And uh, one, of the, one of the things we've been trying to stand against as we got our minds around the last several years is this subjective pietism, you know, thinking that holiness is wrapped up exclusively in me and God, you know, me and Jesus, what I do in my quiet time, what I do in my private life, and this whole public demeanor out there, well, somehow that's not to be uh, a concern of a yeah. real Christian, certainly not of the church. And so we just kind of let that go, which is crazy if Jesus Christ is Lord. He's oh, Lord yeah. over everything, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So why do you think, give, give the best uh, construction that you can, and then let's try to maybe drill down and be a little more realistic. Why do you think so many evangelical leaders over the last several years have, have been sounding this drum, this, this warning, you know, beware of politics, don't get engaged in politics, it's dirty and you shouldn't do that. And they point out the worst case examples of Christians who fall into bad patterns, uh, thinking and acting politically. What, what do you think that is motivating that? What's driving that? What are the real
1: concerns there? I think there are a lot. I mean, I think some are just trying to make peace with, uh, with defeat. Uh, th- that um, th- th- we haven't been that successful, maybe we haven't been that good at it, and so um, let's just come up with a rationale for why we should always uh, accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some that are probably not entirely honest. Uh, right? They're, they're they're actually saying uh, you guys give up power the, they, the people we don't like uh, the people that that if they had power would would do things that we don't like and they say christians should give up power yeah and yeah. so when 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 they convince you to give up your power they're not exactly giving up their power right <laughs> they're they're taking positions where they're they're called you know public theologians and things like that it's like well they're they're actually seeking quite a bit of power and they're seeking to influence government and and these things but they they, they want to do it in a different way, yeah. And if you can convince your opponents to stop seeking power, and you're the only one seeking power, that's pretty convenient <laughs> uh, for you. I, but uh, and not everyone's that cynical, yeah. <laughs> Certainly, right. but
0: yeah. Uh, you, either you guys, or you probably wouldn't. You might. You ever hear of Justice Sunday? You remember the Justice Sunday movement years ago? have heard of that? Maybe no. about fifteen years ago or so. And man, I saw this coming in, and I, I wrote against it. I thought this is crazy. It was, it was basically draping the flag over the Bible, you know, and having mm. Sunday services. There was Justice, Justice Sunday services, and churches were being encouraged to just stand up for America and all. And I recoiled against that. I still recoil against that. But looking back on it, I think, well, okay. I mean, they were trying to do something. They were just misguided mm. because there wasn't a rigorous, in my estimation, uh, thoughtful kind of uh, theological foundation for thinking about political issues, as well as other public issues. So in retrospect, I I haven't gone back and read some of the things I wrote, but I I probably would chasten myself today Mm -hmm. based upon what I saw then as just a complete capitulation to Mm -hmm. partisan politics and recognize, well, wait a minute, there's a good impetus in this. It was just misguided and hijacked in bad ways, which is all the more a call for doing what we're trying to do in the Institute Mm -hmm. of Public Theology and particularly with this course on
2: political theology. Yeah, it's interesting that that's what I think what most people when they talk about Christian nationalism is that's what comes to mind. Yeah. The flag over the Bible. And then you get people on the other side who are saying, you know, I'm a Christian nationalist. But what that means is that I'm a nationalist as opposed to an imperialist or a globalist (laughs) or a feudalist. And I want my nation to be explicitly Christian. And so you get these arguments going back and forth. People are just talking past each other.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Dunson, are you a Christian nationalist?
2: Yeah, um, so I I still kind
1: of recoil from that term, but um, the the reason is not because I care if someone calls me a Christian nationalist. Uh, And just like Graham said, right, the the political vision that I would articulate, I'm certain that the people who don't like what they call Christian nationalism would call it Christian Mm -hmm, nationalism. Um, I was was trying to think about why I still don't like that term, and I I thought about some, uh, even some recent things that have happened in Florida, you know, where, where Ron DeSantis uh, remove the prosecutor, and you—you you were commenting on that recently, because um, he said he wouldn't enforce Roe versus Wade. And I thought, that's exactly how uh, government should be operating, right? You should be seeking justice. We know what justice is as Christians, and and you should be seeking to do that. But I thought, what would happen if Ron DeSantis said, "I'm a Christian nationalist, and I'm removing this man um, out of my my biblical obligation to do X, Y, or Z." I have a sense it would go differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's just because uh, we live in a secular world and we need to challenge that. Um, but I would rather see it happen than see it thwarted because um, of trying to argue for a specific label that is going mm-hmm. to turn yeah. other Christians off even. So it, it's really pragmatic for me. It's, yeah. it's really a matter of, of strategy um, I think so. I don't. I don't care if someone calls me a Christian nationalist. I know most of the time people say that they use that phrase. They're just using it as a as a way to say these people are horrible. You know, Christians who are going to do horrible things to us.
2: Yeah, and,
0: and it's there, there's two or three different fronts in my own mind about this because even trying to address some of the things we've been addressing the last few years uh, through Founders their folks that say, "Well, you're just nothing but theonomists. You want a theocracy. You, know, right. you want to bring in the Old Testament uh, case laws again and apply them with full authority, as as if they were still in force for everyone everywhere." And you're not a theonomist. no. Right? Yeah. So what? How? How do you think in terms Christianly, wanting right. to see Christianity prevail, wanting to see politics and our our lives together in nation states come under the uh, right influence of Jesus Christ as Lord without falling into the theonomy or theocracy.
1: Advocate. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually looking at the law itself uh, and just recognizing that there were aspects of the law that are very specifically centered on Israel's life as a nation in the land that, that can't be transferable. Yeah. I think that's the simplest answer to that. Um, it, but it's also recognizing that the law had certain moral principles and mm-hmm. a certain moral bedrock. I mean, Christians have recognized this well before the rise of theonomy. Yeah. It, it's just, it's a classic Christian view that the 10 commandments are a reflection of the basic natural law, uh, which natural law is nothing other than just God's timeless moral law. Mm-hmm. And so I see that and Christians have seen that historically as, as a necessary bedrock for a healthy society And and I I support that. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I I think the law itself makes it clear that there are certain dimensions, um, including even certain aspects of the civil enforcement that, that were restricted to Israel's time in the land. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we, we, we shouldn't try to, to reinstate those.
0: Yeah. Um, Our confession, I think the Westminster also talks about general equity, doesn't it? You know, it's certainly there in the uh, 1689 confession and, I've seen that. I've recently been reading uh, John Dagg, who was the first writing theologian among Baptists in the South in the 19th century. And he's got books that are better known, but one book is not so well known. It's called Elements of Moral Science, which is an ethics uh, book for him. And I was just struck by the number of times that he is appealing to Old Testament case law. Mm. You know, it's not because he's trying to implement it and say, okay, this is the, what we've got to do here in the United States of America. But he is uh, demonstrating what the confession says about looking and seeing where the general equity lies in those case laws that are applicable for us today and how we should try to order our lives in the best way uh, together in a nation state and I mean we need to be doing that we haven't done that very mm-hmm. well at least in our baptist circles over i don't know at least a few
2: generations here yeah So I have an interesting question for you. I mean, we can talk about the Christian's role in politics and in culture and all that, but uh, what would you say the church's role in politics should be?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I think there's a lot of confusion uh, about that in particular. Um, You know, uh, we, we, we live in America where a lot of people think that Thomas Jefferson's claim about separation of church and state the absolute wall of separation they think that's in the constitution so we, we sort of have an uphill battle <laughs> i mean he was he was in the minority in holding yeah. that view at that time like, that, was, that was a radical view right. at the time he and madison uh, spoke in that kind of way but very few other um, people at that time in america did mm. including our leaders Right. Um, and, and so um, I mean, one thing I like to show people is just go back to America's past and you'll see that that's not even common for Americans, e- including our founding fathers, to, to think in terms of that that absolute separation. But it is very important to distinguish the, the work of the church from the work of Christians serving um, in, in politics or things like that. So we have to make that distinction. Uh, the, the vocation of the pastor is very different than the vocation of the politician. They're both legitimate and valid um, vocations, but but they're different, and, and they have different um, they have different uh, things that they focus on. But we don't want to radically separate uh, that either. And, and what's the job of the church? Well, the job of the church is to preach the gospel, but it's the whole gospel. It's the whole Christ, right? Christ for justification, Christ for sanctification, and that's going to be shaping God's people, right? It's going to be equipping them to go out and serve in different vocations. So if they go out to serve politically, or even if it's not as a politician, even if it's just simply uh, to to see you could get more active in your local community, um, maybe in, in local politics or state politics or something like that, if you're able to do that, that's a good thing. The church should encourage that, and it, and it should equip the people of God to go out and serve that way. And to do that um, joyfully, without guilt, thinking that, Somehow, this isn't a spiritual thing, you know. That I'm somehow getting my hands dirty in, mm-hmm. in this. Um, if just basic moral formation, how, how are they going to be equipped to to serve politically themselves or to to vote or anything? If they if they're not morally formed, especially in a in a very chaotic moral environment, like yeah, right now?
2: it's uh you know. Patrick Henry argued for the um, that the government would pay ministers and, and provide for the needs of, of ministers and of course uh, most of the states and then the federal government uh, did not do that but um, but he had he had a view not necessarily of separation of church and state as Madison or Jefferson did but he had a view of a distinction even with the the government paying ministers a distinction between church and state and I'm not advocating that the government should pay ministers either um, but that distinction. I think is a, is a helpful one to, to never lose that. Though the church may get involved in politics in some way, and Christians may get involved in politics in some way, there still will always be a distinction. There still will always be an exercise of the keys by the church, and mm-hmm. an exercise of the sword by the civil magistrate. Yeah,
0: yeah and I, as a Baptist growing up, I remember that separation of church and state and the, Danbury Baptist Association and the letter that was written. And, you know that was a, a, a kind of a high water mark uh, for us as Baptists to look back on and say, "Oh, this was our great contribution," and <laughs> mm-hmm. you know I can appreciate it even now. That yet there is a. a a separation, there ought to be a separation between church and state, yeah. but not between Christ and state. Mm. I mean, Christ is Lord over everything. And so the state is obligated to Christ. Mm-hmm. Governors, presidents, senators, everyone is obligated to Christ. And that makes some in our circles nervous when you say that. They, they immediately hear, oh, theocracy. Right. But no, Christ doesn't intend for the church to be the state or the state to be the church. There is a difference between them, but he's Lord over both. Mm-hmm. And both owe him a uh, complete uh, obedience and submission and following after what he's prescribed for them to do, which is different.
2: So yeah. as we've already said. So in your mind then, what is, for, for a Christian who wants to be engaged in politics, uh, what is the purpose of politics? And then why would a Christian want to be engaged in politics? Yeah, the, the purpose of politics
1: is to to order a society rightly it's to administer justice in the world. Um, the state exists to punish evil, exists to uh, to uh, promote that which is good and to uh, praise that which is good. It exists for the, the well-being of the people under its authority. Right? Those are all inherently good things. And if you put it in those terms, I think Christians can see that, right? Is that the state exists for those purposes. And who wouldn't want to be involved in some way. Now, now everyone doesn't need to devote themselves to politics. Everyone doesn't need to be a politician. Some people can devote more time than others to that, but you can at least see it as an inherently good thing. And, uh, and even power or even mm. the exercise of political power, it's either going to be done unrighteously or righteously. It's going to be done good or it's going to be, uh, it's gonna be done well, or it's going to be done badly. Mm. And, uh, we want to see it done well. And uh, we should uh, encourage Christians to promote
2: that and not be afraid of that. So, then in your mind, uh, what is the ideal political regime? Yeah, the ideal. Po-
1: <laughs> so, so I mean, that's a very interesting discussion in, in Protestant uh, political thought. Uh, it, they they kind of carry over the, the old uh, discussions in uh, Plato and Aristotle, Cicero, where they, they look at the, the benefits and the drawbacks of democracy, the benefits and, and, and drawbacks of monarchy the benefits and drawbacks of something like oligarchy, um, a- and they can see that there are benefits to each, potentially, um, but there are possibly drawbacks to each, and I think they would all recognize that it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing, and th- that's the impression I get in, in older Protestant thinkers as well. I mean, most of them live in a context where they, they either live under a king, or they live in, in a kind of city-state um, environment like Calvin in Geneva, where there's the, the local magistrates who rule. And they don't, they don't argue that we need to overthrow these regimes because they're not the one true perfect form of government. Mm-hmm. They, they argue that you can operate in many different kinds of political system, righteously as a Christian, and you can you can actually see justice administered. You can see a right political ordering in many different kinds of states. And so they're not actually that concerned usually to say it has to be one or the other. If it's a monarchy, then they're going to be concerned to say there need to be ways in which lower officials can check someone who becomes a tyrant as a monarch. Um, but uh, they don't say that monarchy is inherently illegitimate. And that's really how I feel, too, is that despite the rhetoric, that, that we've uh, heard for a long time, you know, that democracy is the only legitimate form of government. I think you can have a righteous democracy. I mean, if the people are voting well, if they're putting good people into power, it's always healthy to have the people having some sense that they have some control mm-hmm. over those who are over them. I think that's that's possible even in a, in a monarchy. Um, I think that's healthy, but I don't think you have to insist on that. So th- the short answer is, Christians can operate righteously in, in many forms of government. Uh, is there a, a more ideal form? I think it's more what is government doing rather than uh, what is the form that, mm. that matters most. Um, is it actually exercising justice? Is it punishing mm. evil? Is it promoting the good? Um, is it... Uh, is it seeking to honor God in those ways? Mm-hmm.
0: You know, in America, we have such an incredible opportunity that God's blessed us with over the history of our nation, and it's been easy to take it for granted. And that's, that's what happened to me. I, I talked to uh, a man I've known for a while who's on the other side of some of these issues with me on, on in terms of social justice, wokeness, and whatever. And we talked a few years ago, and he said one of the things as he's become more kind of involved in that that has happened to him is he realized he was valuing his American citizenship too much, which was interesting. I said, well, one of the things that's happened to me is I realized I had not valued it nearly enough. Now, certainly citizenship in King in the, in heaven is right. That's, that's triumphal over everything that's primary, but God has done something in this nation that is incredible. And if you just look at it from a purely pragmatic standpoint, I mean, we send the gospel around the world. We give, we help. This nation in its history, with all of its flaws, grant the critics everything they want to say about that, nevertheless has done incredible good for the world. And it's done so because of the Christian impact, the power of the gospel that was working even in deists like Jefferson. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that Jefferson wanted the, the emblem of the nation to be Pharaoh, mm-hmm. you know, being wiped out in the Red Sea. I mean, this is a deist. Yeah. Give me deists like that today, you know, I <laughs> would love to have that. And so if that's true, if God has done that in this nation and there's been so much good, why in the world would we just sit by and squander it? Mm. Not pretending that we're one uh, a, a church state or a state church, but as the church trying to teach those people, whom we see become disciples, to observe everything that Jesus has commanded, which includes thinking righteously about government right. and the state. So I, I am very hopeful that there will be a backlash. I hope we're a part of it, yeah. of what we've seen for many, many years now with Christians who are saying, no, we need to think more carefully and deeply about these things and recover uh, something of our heritage that in at least a majority of my pastoral life I just didn't think deeply enough about and I appreciate what you're doing at the American Reformer in resourcing that type of effort.
2: Yeah I do think that there is a backlash I think as we see the rise of neo-Marxism people you know Yoram Hosoni talks about this uh, people who have been previously liberal are seeing the way that liberalism is not sufficient to fight Marxism and so they're they're going over to conservatism. But conservatism in the West is rooted in the Christian tradition. That's right. And so you can't you can't get too far into political conservatism without seeing the law and the gospel yeah. in, in the scriptures. Yeah. Um, so I do see that as a hopeful sign. I do see it as an opportunity that the church has now.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, Ben, thank you for joining us today. Uh, yeah, thank we're you for grateful having me. for your work and we pray that God will continue to prosper it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the Sword and the Trial.